So, today I'm going to talk about the Bible. How was it written? Right? Have you ever wondered? We have this Bible, we believe in it, so many have given their life for it. But at the same time, it was written by sinful men. How do we know that? It's interesting. They documented their own sins as they were writing the Bible. A lot of them wrote the things, the, the, the things that they would normally hide in the Bible and they wrote it. And so we know there were sinful men. And, and how is it that sinful men can write something that we now perceive as divine and we are willing to follow and say, hey, you know, everything in the Bible we follow. How is it possible? Well, before I go into that, I want to share three perspectives. One of them will be the Adventist perspective, but two more other perspectives um, of Christianity that, and, and their belief on how the Bible was written, how God actually gave them a, the information and the contents um, to write. And so the first, I call it perspective one, I don't want to name call, uh, it started right in the beginning. Right? We know that when it started, there were three great philosophers. You have it on uh, your screen right now. The first was Socrates, and then his prize student, Plato, and then Plato's prize student was Aristotle. And so they continued to pass on this legacy of uh, philosophy. And through these three great philosophers, Greek civilization and the philosophy and the mindset actually spread through the world, through Alexander the Great, when he conquered. And so much of our world, even the way we think, the way we like abstract thoughts, actually comes from these three guys. Right? And so as the church grew and we, um, they struggled to actually interface between the Hebrew mindset and the Greek mindset, um, two Christian philosophers, the one on the left, he's uh, Augustine, the one on the right, uh, Aquinas, they started to write. And what they would do is they would convert actually the Hebrew mind into Greek pictures, Greek philosophy, right? And as they were writing, one of the main challenges that they would actually come into was that Greek divinity was very mixed. It was very yin and yang, if you understand. They were like superheroes. You know, they were good, they were powerful, but at the same time, they would always have a little bit of um, their sinful side. They would give in to certain human tendencies. You know that from Zeus. Um, he is the god. But, you know, once in a while, he'll come down to earth, uh, he'll see a lady, and then we have Hercules, right? That is half god, half man. And so these were Greek gods. And so in order for Augustine and Aquinas to separate the Christian god, which was fully sovereign, they actually pushed for this idea that God, the eternal God, is a timeless god. And James knows this because his lecturer um, used to say, the timelessness of God. Uh, man, okay. And so, what does a timeless God mean? Well, a timeless God just means a God that 
is eternal, and so he cannot interface with time. Very abstract. Um, but follow on with me. So, if a God cannot experience time, because you know, time and him just cannot get along, he cannot actually experience change. Why? Because for change to actually occur, you need two points of time. Right? You need a before, change, and then after. That's how you quantify and qualify change. And so, if he's eternal, then God cannot change. Right? And if he cannot change, he too cannot experience changing emotions. Because that is change. And, um, and because we live in time and space, and God is eternal, God cannot actually come into our reality. He's apart from us. Right? And um, what happened as a result of this mindset was that in order for a timeless God to actually still do good works, to actually still help us to carry out His plan of salvation, it would need to be predetermined from the beginning. When God created time, He predetermined everything that would happen from the beginning. So that was logically what they believed. And um, I don't comment too much about predetermination, but if that is what we believe in, then what Satan did was just merely a part of God's plan. Because God willed it from the beginning that Satan would rebel. And now you see, we have a huge problem, right? But, well, as a result of this mindset, how did the writers write the Bible? Well, the writers would have their intellect elevated. Why? Because man cannot understand timeless truths. And so we'll be like, you know, our, their intellect will be turbocharged to be like superhuman. And then they will receive epiphanies, timeless ideas, only timeless ideas, and only timeless doctrines in the Bible are eternal. So God is love. That is an eternally uh, inspired truth. Um, history, not inspired. And we know our Bible is filled with history, right? And then, so not all the Bible will be inspired. And then what else? Lastly, the writers are seen as God's tools. What does that mean? It means they just write what God tells them to write. They don't need to comprehend it. They just need to write it. We call that word inspiration, but they just write, right? And as, as hard it is to grasp, uh, move with me to perspective two. So this was, perspective one was actually what the church believed in for a long, long time. And through that whole process, if you were poor, it's because God willed you to be poor. There was no such thing as charity at that time, right? Social justice is part of God's plan. If I'm successful, God's plan. If you did something wrong, God willed you to be wrong. Just have faith. That was a perspective as the church progressed. And then came the great awakening, the great enlightenment, when the scientific mind started to form and perspective two happened. Right? So perspective two, they started 
with the same starting point. God is also a timeless God, but this time, they argued that, you know what? Human knowledge can only be understood in space and time. Right? Human knowledge. So, your conscious thought, your conscious thought can only be in space and time. And so, what does that mean? Consequently, they said, God cannot transmit divine knowledge, divine information through knowledge. So, because God is eternal, God's knowledge is eternal and timeless, uh, our knowledge is time-bound, they are incompatible. And so, the only way for God to actually um, communicate with men must be through deep emotions. So, it's not a conscious thing, it's a feeling, a feeling of deep dependence, like, you know, one day you wake up and you feel, oh, I feel like God is telling me something. That's it. That's the only way God can tell you something, right? Deep emotions. And the writers would write out of this feeling of dependence on God. And so, as a result, no knowledge is actually transmitted by God. Um, they are only writing from deep emotions. And from this train of thought, pantheism and panentheism started. Um, what does that mean? It means the idea that God is the world. The world and God is one. And as the world grows, God grows. Or God is the universe. And the world is part of God. And as the universe grows, God grows. Right? Uh, I know, a bit abstract, but this is Greek philosophy. And everything is subjective. Why? Because only deep emotions matter. For those of us that have been uh, in the Adventist church for a long, long time, that is one of the reasons why we are so adverse to just emotional worship. It was because of this train of thought that came down. If I feel, it must be from God. And that's all. Because only deep emotions are divine. So what do Adventists believe? What do we believe? Well, first, I'd like to read two parts of the Bible from Scripture. The first says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, by the way. Um, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How much of Scripture? All of Scripture, right? Let's look at another verse found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20-21. to 21. It says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced, by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have verse after verse after verse after verse in the Bible, right? Actually telling us how the Bible was written. And so what do the Adventists believe? Well, first and foremost, in this principle called Sola Scriptura, 
you would have heard it. It means only the Bible, and the Bible is our rule. And not just the Bible, because Perspective 1 and Perspective 2, they, they believed in the Bible, right? They actually read the Bible. But the difference is this. Tota Scriptura, the whole Bible. Not just part of the Bible, not just certain sections, not just the divine parts, but the whole Bible is written by God. And so, if we read the Bible, case in point, Jesus Christ, He came to earth. He mingled with men. He talked. He said some things. They were all recorded. We know that God enters into our time and space. And God can interact with us. This is what Adventists believe, right? And how did God actually get the writers to actually write the Bible? Two huge ways. Uh, supernatural and natural. Okay. But with supernatural, there were three key ways. The first was Theophany, which was by miracles. And we see that in the burning bush where Moses met God. Burning bush, you know, as the Israelites were in the wilderness, what? They saw a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire by night. Those were God's presence manifested in a miracle. And then we have prophecies. Um, you can read, it's in Numbers 12, uh, Exodus 31, verse 18. The verses are all there. You can go in and read it. Uh, where prophecy, where God makes predictions into the future, right? And He unveils His power through prophecy. And the last one is verbally, when God verbally speaks and they record it. So these are the three supernatural ways in which God actually helps um, the writers write the Bible. And then natural, historical recordings. Now this is important, right? You can check in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Lamentations 3, verse 1. But historical recordings, every historical record in the Bible is inspired by God. So it's not just the interactions with God, but it is history itself that has the fingerprints of God. And anything that has the fingerprints of God is inspired. And so what do we believe? That both, not only part of the Bible, okay, or none, but the whole Bible is divine. And we believe just like Jesus Christ was fully divine and fully human. The Bible, similarly, but not identical, is also fully divine and fully human. It was both. And so, as a result, there is actually no fixed pattern used by God. God uses any way. He is not restricted to a certain pattern as compared to perspective one or two where, oh, they must have their intellect. You know, you could be walking down, they could be walking down and they see God doing something and they write, inspired. There's no fixed pattern, right? All of Scripture is divine and this is important. It's influence and not control. Man was not used as a tool by God to write, but rather God inspired the person, right? We used to move from word inspiration where God gives us the words 
and then they wrote, and then we moved to thought, where God gave them a thought, and then they, they wrote the thoughts down into human words. But the biggest argument right now is, is, not, is thought even good enough? Because God inspires lives, and the inspired life writes out of inspiration. So that's what we believe. And the Bible, as compared to the other perspectives, doesn't, you know, they say that, you know, only a small portion of the Bible is uh, inspired. And that's all the divine acts that God actually did. Um, Jesus, history, that's all allegorical. It's not really real. Well, we believe that the Bible only contains a small portion of all of God's divine acts that he's ever done on earth. It is just the executive summary. So God continues to divinely act in our world. And everything is historically grounded, right? So we have the acronym NICE. <laughs> Alright? <laughs> and this is the verse, right? But before we read it, I just want to end with two reflections. You know, when I was growing up, I used to think, if I give my life to God, He's going to take away parts of me that will make me lose myself. Have we ever had that thought? I used to grow up and even now, at some level, I think emotionally, I still struggle with that. Like as, as I give this part of myself to God, ah, I lose what is unique about myself. And the end point of a fully devoted Christian looks exactly like the other person's version of a fully devoted disciple. And so it seems like, you know, as we become more devoted, we all look more and more and more alike and we lose our uniqueness. That was something that I struggled with so much. And as actually I did this class, I realised if God doesn't even take away the humanity of the biblical writers, why would he take away what's unique to me? Why would he take away parts of my personality? Yes, maybe he, he needs us to, to cut some stuff out, but that is not in creating uniformity, but that is in creating, that is in the work of restoration, rather. And so in trying to restore myself, in trying to restore all of us, to who he wants us to be, we actually become a fuller human than what we were before. The world tries to tell us, you know, be yourself, don't follow God, don't tell anyone what to do. But the irony is, if we listen to that, the world tells us another contradictory um, message, isn't it? Be yourself as far as it is, socially accepted. You, you can't really be yourself, in a way. They tell you to be yourself, but don't be yourself if we don't like it. That's what the world says, right? But God is saying, if you will let me work in you, and that's why we have so many parts of the Bible that says, abide in my works, right? We have the famous one that says, if you abide in me and I in you. Why? It is so 
that God can begin to work in restoration in my life. So that when I look at myself, it is not that I'm becoming less of Lionel. It is not that you will become less of yourself, but that you will become a fuller, more complete person. And the second, and so that's why we have this verse. God wants us to have life to the full. And the second one is that for the longest time, I had a problem with faith. And I'll ask God, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll pray and I'll say, Jesus, it's so difficult to believe in you. If only I was there and I saw you face to face, I would have a stronger faith. You know, I go through life doing that. I'm not sure whether you do. And I'll say, hey, if only I saw miracles, if only I saw you part the Red Sea, if only I saw this, I would have more faith. Right? If only I was one of the 12 disciples. I don't know. There's so many reasons. But in starting this, I've come to realize the best representation of who God is is in our hands, is in your hands, is the Bible. And the unfortunate thing is so many of us, we read verses in the Bible, but we don't actually read the Bible. We know verses, but we don't really know the Bible. We don't read it, we don't spend time in it, we just quote it. And for some of us here, you know, maybe you've been in church for a long time and you've looked at others just like myself. Go, huh? You know, I'm committed enough in church. This is, this is the line I draw, you know. Uh, as far as my relationship with God is, this is as close as I want to get. Um, God, any further, I don't actually have the faith. And we look at that and we tell God, I don't have what it takes to believe more to take the next step. Or we look at each other and we look at certain behaviours and go, wow, how does that person live a life like that? I cannot. And we just look and we stay there and we wait. And we wait. We wait for our faith to grow. Well, I have a quote from Ellen White uh, in Selected Messages, Volume 1. She says this, If you refuse to believe until every shadow of uncertainty and every possibility of doubt is removed, you will never believe. The doubt that demands perfect knowledge will never yield to faith. And I read this about two months ago. For two months, um, this message has been on my mind. And I've been thinking, do I demand more results, more empirical evidence from God so that I can believe, so that I can grow in faith? Or am I asking God just simply to grow my faith? Because as long, and in this Christian journey, as long as we look 
to others, right? And we look at their, the fruits of their faith even. You know, looking to other people's fruits of faith doesn't really grow your faith. For me, personally, all it does is sometimes it demoralizes me. How can this person do something like that? And we look at the Christian heroes in the Bible, right? How could they be like that? And we go, oh, I can't. Let's just stop here. And some of us have been in church for so long and we've grown comfortable with just where we are that we've taken a passive step in growing our faith. Don't be passive. If today you feel a tug in your heart and um, you know you think God is asking you to trust, do it, right? Uh, you need help? Well, you're on Facebook, uh, you're here. Just WhatsApp James, drop a message in uh, Facebook. Just say, I need help, I need some information, I need support, I need prayer, whatever you need. The worst thing you can ever do in your faith is to just take a passive stance and just wait. Passiveness in faith does not grow faith. It actually just stipends it. And um, I talked about, you know, looking at other people's acts of faith. The only thing we need to do, honestly, is not to look at others and their faith, but it's to look at Jesus Christ. And as we focus on Him, as we walk with Him, as we read this amazing book, and I've always thought it was a, a special divine book, but the part where God leaves humanity for us, still intact, gives me so much hope, so much encouragement, that God is determined to walk with us every step of the way. So today, I would like to end with this last appeal. Don't. Just don't be passive in your faith, alright? Um, if you feel something tugging in your heart and you need to move forward, do it. Because if we start growing our faith simply by looking at others, we will always, always find disappointment. But if we start by growing our faith, by looking to Jesus Christ, then no matter what happens, like what Ellen White says, you will have a faith that you will have doubts that will always yield to faith. And so that is my message for you. And I would actually like to invite the worship team for their summer response.